Good morning, Door Creek. Hey, if you're a guest here today, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team. We're really glad that you've joined us. And uh, just recently returned from Africa, and I bring you greetings. So greetings from the church in Africa. That's one of the things they do all the time. Please bring and share our greetings back to the church as I had an opportunity to send our greetings off to them. First, the church in Kenya. We, we met up with this guy, Pastor John, amazing man, planted that church that we visited uh, in 1989. And he told us that since that time, he's planted another 161 churches, 37 in the country of Tanzania. And I'm just going, how do you do that? It's unbelievable. It was amazing. Uh, we saw the uh, academy and the work of Compassion International that was working with his church and the kids in that community, and it was amazing. We're really excited to explore more of a formal partnership with Compassion somewhere in the world. And then I bring you greetings from the Goma region of Rwanda, where we are in partnership through World Relief with about 70 churches that are part of this area serving about 26 to 30,000 people. And so here's a picture of about 33 of those pastors that were gathered for a day of training. And we had a great day working through the book of Jonah together and talking about how to study and read and prepare to teach God's word. And man, that was an, a dynamic time and a very interesting group I'll tell you about in a little bit. Um, but we, we just saw the work of Rwanda, which just lets me easily say this to you, you guys. When you're partnering with Door Creek and you're giving and praying for our work around the world in places like Rwanda, we're having a huge impact. And as we learn more about our brothers and sisters in Christ, they have so much to teach us as well. And so thank you for that partnership. And when I think about Africa, it's now my fifth time to Africa, I've been saying this line and I didn't know why I said it. And the line went like this, Africa gets in your blood. And I go, I'm going to go figure out why do I say that? Because I don't say it of any other continent or place I've ever been. Africa gets in your blood. And what I realized early on is it's the people, Mark, of course. It's the people. And they're beautiful people. And they're resilient people. And they're strong. And like this guy, I mean, to me, this picture kind of epitomizes African people. Like, we're driving down the road, literally, in a car. He sees that I've got a camera on the dash. I'm trying to get pictures of bikers because my boys are so into bikes. And there are so many things moving by bike in Rwanda. Like, you name it. A bed, a bookshelf, a bag of corn. A bunch of, bunches of bananas, pineapples. And so this guy sees me and he's riding. It's not like he stopped. It's just the big, the big hello, man, how are you doing? This is awesome. So um, our partnership is something I've been thinking about because it's what Philippians is talking about. Together, finding the greater joy. And I, I, I think sometimes we think about when I find the greater joy, it's going to be me that finds it, that it's not going to be us. So I've been thinking a lot about partnerships. But, you know, I've just been over in Africa for a couple weeks with our partners. We just did a marriage retreat. We were talking about the partnership of our marriage. 
We've been thinking about the partners that we have here, like through Meal Pack. So do you guys realize we have an opportunity to partner with a Meal Pack here? March 4th through 6th, we're going to put together 90,000 meals, and we're going to be doing that through our partner schools. How amazing is that? So the kids and their parents and the teachers and the administrators, we're all going to be packing meals to go to the kids in Haiti, like in that little village that we've adopted in that school in a place called Zoranger that I visited a little while over a year ago, and we're going to feed those kids for a year, and there's going to be a whole bunch more for more kids. Our partnership with Mission of Hope uh, is amazing because over the years, that organization has fed, get this, 100,000 kids every day in Haiti, every day. And so I've been thinking a lot about partnership. You can join us for this, right? So we still need people to volunteer. You can just click on events on our website, and you can just sign up with your friends, your life group, your family, uh, if, you, if you haven't met anybody yet, we'll come be family as we serve together. And you can still give to that as we're still raising monies for the meals. So um, I've been thinking a lot about partnerships and thinking about this theme of the, how we find the greater joy when we understand how Christ brings us together. And that changes who we are. And it changes how we do our life. And, and when we do it according to God's ways and will, all modeled perfectly in Jesus, greater joy, greater joy. So grab your Bible. We're in the second chapter now, third message in Philippians. We're in chapter two. So we're, we're at the back of your Bible if you're new to the Bible, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're in the back. Use your table of contents. Now, if, you, if you're there already, you'll notice the very first word of the, the chapter is the word therefore. So this is kind of a little, we're in class right now, just, just for this, right? And then, then we'll get out of class, I promise. But when we see a therefore, it's kind of corny, but it's true. You always ask the question, what's it there for? I know, it's weird, but it's true. In other words, the therefore grammatically is building this new thought that is built on what has been stated before. So I want to just kind of do a little review of what he's been talking about, specifically about their partnership in chapter 1. That their partnership was founded and is grounded in grace. Verse 7, all of you share in God's grace with me. So grace, a free gift from God, grace. Just think Jesus, that's the expression of God's kindness, his goodness, his grace, something we didn't deserve, Jesus, all right? Their partnership had a clear mission. They're striving together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. Their mission is clear. They knew what Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. So we're working together for the faith, so that other people would place their trust in Jesus and find their hope and life in Christ and get on with his mission. Their, their partnership had a clear mission. Their partnership was growing, it was dynamic, and it was being strengthened by several things. Number one, they understood that God was in it with them. He was committed. Chapter 1, verse 6, I'm counting this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, Paul says to the Philippian church, He's going to complete it. 
till the day of Christ Jesus. And so they were confident in that. They were confident in the power of the gospel. So that Paul, the messenger of the gospel, though he's chained, he's saying is actually serving to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole palace guard that I'm suffering for Christ because he's told them about who Jesus is, how he's changed his life, and why he's willing to suffer even imprisonment for this good news. They're confident in the power of the gospel. Their, their partnership is growing because they have this mutual love. The Philippians for Paul. Paul for the Philippians where he says, man, I really, I'm exhausted, you guys. I'm ready to die. Man, that's going to be far better for me to just die because to be absent from the body is to be present with him. But I know for your sake, I know for your sake, I need to stay for your joy and your progress in the faith. I love you. Mutual love. Their partnership was growing and strengthening by a mutual uh, unity in the gospel and through the spirit, Christ's spirit, growing through this commitment to, to live lives that are worthy and to be courageous and willing to suffer and think about suffering not as God's punishment in their life, but actually as a privilege that advances God's purposes in a person's life, in a church's life, and through their lives to the world that God's called us to serve. So he's talking about all those things, and then he says, all right, I've just told you to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. That word worthy means weight. It has an equal weight. So if the gospel is all about Jesus, then our lives measure up to Jesus. So I'm asking you to live and conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. Therefore, therefore, he reminds them of all the benefits and of all the gifts that God has given us through the gracious gift of his son. And even though it's set in this grammar that's these conditional statements, this if statement, the way you can actually form a conditional statement in the Greek, the original language here, in such a way that we understand there's not a question about these things. It's just a way of speaking and actually a way that you could understand this section is replace the word if with since. So be thinking about that as I read this section. Verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. In other words, we do. That's our experience. Since you have the encouragement from being united with Christ, right? If any comfort from his love, we have that since we've had the care, comfort of his love. If any common sharing in the spirit, that is our experience since we have this common sharing in the spirit, Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion, since we've experienced the tenderness and compassion of God's mercy and grace. Now we have the then. Then, if this is true, if this is your experience, then Paul says, make my joy complete by, in a sense, sharing that grace with each other. Look what he says. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. That's not something we do by ourselves. It's what we do together. Having the same love. It's not what we do for ourselves. It's what we do for each other. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That busts up. That's not a demonstration of grace, and that is not a way to be conduits of grace. That just plugs it all up. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests 
of the others. Somebody else has got yours in mind. In, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So, partnerships, he's saying, that are formed and grounded in grace, show it by, first of all, they start dispensing that grace. They share that grace. This is our experience that we have with God through Christ. This is now our experience that we have with each other in our relationships. This is a great marriage pass, passage. But first and foremost, it was a church passage. It's a great family passage. It's a great way to think about our ministries. It, it's, we've experienced his grace and now we're going to share his grace and we're going to guard against that which will stop it all, unravel it all, destroy it all, show nothing about God's heart and his love for us Christ. We're going to guard against the selfish ambition and the vain conceit. So you, you, you've got these things, live it out, live it out. You've received these things from Christ, live it out with each other. So the interesting thing is, when you're in relationship, in a church, in a family, in a marriage, in a ministry, it's so much the human condition that we see the differences first. And we focus on the differences, and we can make the minor things the big things. So he's reminding them well, of course we're going to have differences. He's already said this to the churches in the New Testament, that we're just like a body and we're all different parts. And the beauty of the unity of God's family is seen in the diversity of God's family. And so as we think about being a Christ-centered church for all people, we need to understand that our Christ-centeredness, that this is what made us a people, this is what made us God's children, this is what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, is Christ, right? And so as we're thinking about that, we, we got to go, let's not forget that. This is what brings us together. It's Christ. It's the grace of the gospel. It's his love for us. It's his tenderness, his compassion. When all of a sudden we're going to start seeing differences, and they're, gonna, they're the things that just pop out. They're the things that drive us crazy in marriage. And not as crazy in ministry, but if we're in it long enough, it can drive us crazy in ministry. And so, I mean, you guys, are you ready for this? It's going to be crazy. This year is going to be crazy. And there are going to be bumper stickers that show up in this parking lot, and it's going to mess with your mind. I'm serious. You're laughing. But it's going to mess with your mind. And we got to remember, we're about Christ here. We're about his grace here. And we're not going to get dragged into these differences that divide us. That's what the enemy wants to do, is to divide us. That's why Jesus is praying that we'll stay tight and united like he and the Father and the, and the Spirit are. And so this is huge. A church, a partnership, a marriage that is grounded in grace, then we share that grace with each other. We share it with each other. And we guard against making it all about ourselves. Selfish ambition. That, that's like this wad of hair that gets into the plumbing and stops it all up. And you got to get the Roto-Rooter guy to get it out because <laughs> everything's backing up. Everything's breaking down. It is a cancer 
It destroys God's work in our life, his desire to work through our life. So, yeah, the differences. He's bringing them back to what they have in common, their common experience as members in God's family, recipients of his grace. So, you know, the selfish ambition thing's already come up, right? Ryan was teaching on it last week. Go back. Chapter 1, verse 15. We find it in the leadership of all places. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter, those guys, do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those envious rivalry guys, the former preach Christ out of what? Oh, there it is. Selfish ambition. It's about themselves. It's not Christ. It's not about other people. They're not valuing others as more important. They're not putting their interests, uh, the other person's interests above themselves. It's all about them, these leaders. Selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Well, good thing that was just a first century problem. It never happens on our day, so we don't have to worry about that. Oh, man, that's a big deal. And it can just start as a subtle thing. And this is the stuff of the enemy that he loves to plant. And so it could be as innocuous. Well, man, I, I want to reach, we want to reach more people in Madison because there's so many people who know Christ. And then this other church just is blowing it up and meaning good. For those of you who are boomers, I, that meant a good thing. <laughs> it's blowing up and it's growing. And we go, well, man, I, well, we want to read. And then you just, it's just a little like, I wish, you know, and then, then, you, then it gets really bad when you start going, well, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder why they're growing. Hmm. And so any growing church is a compromising church. You been in one of those churches? You see how insidious that is? Or you get in ministry. Like you're a small group leader, they're a small group leader. Their small group is going crazy. Every week there's new people. Nobody misses that group. And everybody keeps talking. There's such a buzz going on here. My group is a bust. I mean, it's just like, and we go, man, I, I, I mean, I just want to, you know, I just want to reach people. And yeah, it's, 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 it's all nuanced, isn't it? Leadership. But then you get to chapter four, verse two, and you realize, oh, leaders don't have exclusive rights on selfishness and pride. All of a sudden, we meet up with two women, Yodi and Syntyche. And these women were at his side when he plants the church and gets it all going. And he says, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We don't know if it's busted up because of selfishness. We don't know if it's an ethical issue. We don't know if it's theological or philosophical. Who knows? They could have been in the building program and they thought the carpet should be different colors. We don't know. And we're curious. And whenever we're curious about things that aren't said, we just got to relax and go, apparently, that's not the important thing to know. The important thing to know is there were sisters in the church that were at odds. And that was a big deal for Paul because they weren't going to experience the greater joy and they weren't going to be able to share the greater joy. And when we have division as believers in Jesus Christ... Because of our own selfishness and pride, it breaks the very things that God wants to have happen in our lives. So the church, your marriage, our families, our ministries are to be these little mirrors that keep reflecting who God is. And, and if we're telling people that God is this great God who made us and loved us and desires a relationship 
with us. And he sent his own son to die so that we could be reunited and reconciled with him. And then we can't actually live out the reconciling power of the gospel with each other. <laughs> They're just going to go, what are you talking about? I mean, it all sounds really good up here, but when I see it here, this is, it's bogus. And how many times does the church representation of the gospel look like a bunch of petty, selfish, broken people? And people aren't interested, and we wonder why. Jesus was so concerned about this. And this is just as true of our marriage, which is just this mysterious reflection of Christ's love for the church and our refusal to help, our putting career and work and kids in front of our spouse, thinking somehow that we're better and treating them like that in the demeaning ways or the critical ways. That, that is so not what God wants from us or for us. And so Jesus prays about it. He says this in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 21, that all of them, them as us, his disciples, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So the unity he's talking about is to mirror and have the qualities of the perfect unity of God who eternally, so no beginning, no end, has always existed in perfect, loving harmony that he wants our unity to be like the Father's. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. So, and here's the so that. It's an important word, two words. So that why? Why is that important, our unity? So that the world would believe. Believe what? That, Father, you sent me. That they believe the gospel. That they believe the good news of God's love for us in Christ. And so the apologetic is how we treat each other, how we live together, and how we live our lives, not just with each other, but a watching world. And he's going to say, that's going to be most beautifully seen and experienced and, and, and grown, this unity, through humble service. So it makes me think of the story that Don Carson, an old prof of mine at Trinity, uh, probably one of the preeminent New Testament scholars in our day, he had brought in two massive theologians, Carl Henry, Dr. Ken Cancer. These are guys that started things like Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Christianity Today. They're in their 80s. They've had massive influence in uh, America and beyond in their writings. And, and so at the end of the day of just lecturing thousands of students and videotaping it, he does this little Q&A with them. And he says, you know, I, I, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but I've just observed some things that you guys have had unbelievable influence, and yet you've remained men of integrity. You are strong men, but you're not egotistical. You are great theological minds, but neither of you have gone this kind of eccentric path that kind of draws attention to your own theological view or perspective. And he, and he goes on to say, uh, you haven't built any kingdoms, and you've just been faithful, and I want to know what about God's grace has allowed you to do this. And they're both kind of embarrassed because it was a beautiful compliment. And one of them blustered these words when standing beside the cross. No one can be arrogant. When you live your life under the shadow of the cross, there's no room for arrogance. 
So he just said, that's, that's, the huge, that's the huge deal breaker in the partnership of our church, in the partnership of our ministries, of our marriage, is pride. But if we live at the foot of the cross, there's no room for that. Because the cross is the level ground. Like, you're not up a step higher. I'm not a step lower. You're not a step too higher than me. We're all at the same level ground before the cross. And two profound, beautiful truths are there. One, that we have a great need for a Savior because we're all sinners. And one, that we have a great Savior, that we're loved by God. And so he takes us to the foot of the cross, and that's exactly where he goes in the text here. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. He says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, which we're going to find out is far more than a mindset. It, It lives out in all kind of activity. Who, Jesus, being in very nature, or that is literally form God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he had equality with God. He's not saying he abandons his deity, but what he does say is he's going to adopt the life of a servant. Rather, he made himself nothing. Verse 7, by taking the very nature or form, again is the word literally, of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So now we see the humility of Christ. Uh, St. Augustine was asked, what is the kind of kernel? What is the heart, uh, the, 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 the center principle of the Christian life? He said, well, it's three things. First is humility. Second is humility. Third is humility. It's humility. And and Jesus is making a case for that. That, That's exactly what it's about. Having the mind of Christ is a humility that leads to humble service. So we're following Jesus here. And if I would draw it like in some kind of a graph, you know, we start from here in verse 5, and then we get all the way down here in verse 8 where he has died on the cross, and then he goes to the high place, name above all names, every knee bows and every tongue confess, and he's back here. So we go from the heights, then the depths of the valley, and, and we're following Jesus from heaven to earth, from the ultimate place of power to the place of humiliation where he's washing his disciples' feet, hanging naked on a cross. The one who ordered the universe and holds it in place is now under orders, and his orders are to go to Jerusalem to rescue God's people as he gives up his life through Roman execution, and he's doing that. From the center of worship and praise in heaven to the center of humiliation and shame, just outside of Jerusalem where they jeered and they spit at him and they beat him and they mocked him and they laughed at him. This great reversal, Jesus remembering who he is and what he's done, pure holiness who became sin as he took on our sin. The the eternal God who hangs lifeless on a cross, the one who breathed life into everything that is living breathes his last on the cross. Making it clear, several things. Number one, that the good news, the gospel, is not a rags-to-riches story. Fundamentally, it's a riches-to-rags story. From being surrounded by all the riches and praise of God's kingdom, everything, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, he had everything, right? And then he... 
the one who had everything is literally wrapped in rags. Oh, we learned it, some of us, in that wonderful phrase, swaddling clothes. We thought it was satin sheets. It was torn bits of rags, your old T-shirts, guys, that your wife started cutting up. And she wrapped baby Jesus, and remember where she laid him, in a feeding trough that had the encrusted saliva of the animal still all around Jesus' head. It's not a rags to riches. It's a riches to rags for us, the Father's glory. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, thinking only of his own interests, value himself more than others, nowhere to be found in our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Nowhere. And that love found us. And so when Paul says, you're to have the same mindset as Christ. No selfish ambition. No pride. But, but then he, he gets into it. No thinking you're better. No just making life about you. Always putting other people's interests before your own. Always valuing them before yourself. When, when we think of putting Christ's mindset on, we, we need to understand that Christ's mindset in, in verses 6 through 8 is that he came as a human being and the divine spirit who's always existed takes on human flesh. God didn't just send a letter down, give somebody a vision out in a dry place. He didn't put a, bo- a message in a bottle and have it wash up on the Mediterranean shore and Paul found the message in the bottle. He sent his son who is called the word and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld his glory. And when we take on his mindset, we're not just messengers that have words. We live out that message in our bodies and how we treat people and what we do in the name of Christ for the good of the world he's called us to serve. There's an incarnational part of the mindset where I'm not just going to say, I'm going to send it. A check. I'm not just going to say, and it's super important to pray. I'm going to pray. I, 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 I'm going to take it in my own person for what it is that God is calling me to do. And if we're having a Christ mindset, we're obedient to God's will. And we're doing everything for his glory. And so notice what happens. Notice what happens. All of a sudden, we get to the bottom where he's hanging dead on a cross and it starts moving up. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, from, from the lowest place, crucifixion, we got to catch up with that because we, the cross has become something, it, the cross has become jewelry, the cross has become accessory, the cross has become pretty, it's a beautiful cross, it's gold, it's silver. There is nothing of that in the first century. The whole idea of a cross would, would be like if, 
If I, if I started showing you pictures of those kids at the genocide museum that I saw in Rwanda and Kigali, whose bodies were dismembered by their neighbors and they used to play in their homes. And in a hundred days, a million Tutsis were murdered by their neighbors. And if I, and if I showed you the Holocaust with, uh, victims and the mass graves and we had pictures of slaves whose bodies had been dismembered and backs are growing these scars that are just like unimaginable. You'd walk out of here. You'd walk out of here. you go, what are you, what are you doing? And, and we go, but we, we want a cross. We want a cross. We've lost the cross. But, but it, was, it was such a horrific thing that people in the day wouldn't talk about the cross. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. A slave? A rebel? A criminal? But, but not a free Roman citizen. And so we've we got to understand, he's, he's at the bottom here. He's hanging naked. This is, this is the God of the universe who is innocent. And he's naked. And, and his hands and feet are pierced. This is the low. This is, if we were a follower of Jesus at that time, that was the low of the lows. And then he goes lower, right, into Joseph's tomb. And then he goes up to the highest place. He's exalted, having done everything the Father asked him to do. Exalted as the conquering king who gave up his life only to take it up again. The Spirit of God giving him new life to the highest place, that place of honor. The name above all names, Peter will say, about Jesus' name, Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. Guys, th th this, is, this is the radical claims of Christ that we gotta catch up with. And Paul's reminding us, Jesus is not one of many good guys and it's just one of the ways. He's, no, he's, he's saying he alone is God. He's unique and Peter would say, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be, must be saved. And he's just basically quoting what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't understand what I just said, no one comes to the Father God except by me. I'm not one of many routes. And if you don't think that's what Jesus said, go read the Gospels like in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, when the religious leaders have him in trial and they're ready to convict him, they ask him a simple question. Are you the Messiah, son of the blessed one? And he says, I am. And that's when they pull their hair out and rent their clothes and go, he claims to be God. That's just to be clear. Fact check. Jesus claimed to be God. His disciples knew him to be God acknowledged him as the Christ, the son of the living God. The religious leaders convicted him on that basis. And Jesus would go on to say, as he said, I am, he would go on to say, you'll see me sitting at the right hand, that highest place. And then he goes on to say, not only that, I'm coming on the clouds of heaven. And Paul says, and when he does, every knee will acknowledge him as king, and every tongue will acknowledge him as God. Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you've done that, but 
This is where history is going, not just Jesus' story, all of history. Christ has come as Savior. He's called us to do his work as his body, the church, in our marriages, in our families, in our groups, our life groups. And when he comes back, he's going to establish a new kingdom and everything will be made right. And whether you've acknowledged him as king and Lord here in this world, we all will, the Bible says. And some won't have the same response. If you know Jesus Christ, Lord, you see him, it'll be like, oh, I've been waiting for this day all my life. And, and we'll be blown away when we see the beauty of Christ. We'll fall to our knees. We won't even think about it. And the person who never thought anything about Christ or thought he didn't need Christ or she didn't want Christ and rejected, that person too will fall to their knees and acknowledge who he is, who he's always been. Why will we bow? Why will we acknowledge him as Lord? Because he's already told us. Because he is God who came in the flesh for us. So there's a couple implications and questions to ask ourselves as we wind up. Have we grasped the gravity of grace? See, if our lives... If, there, if humble service is one of those things, well, okay, if I've got to, I'll do a little of that, but don't ask me to do too much of that because it's really, I don't really, I'm pretty uncomfortable doing that humble service stuff and I'm a pretty busy person anyways. If, if, the, if our response to humble service is, uh, is kind of reticent or we're, we're kind of making excuses why, well, we don't really do that. You know, other people are really more gifted. Like, I don't have that mercy gift. I don't think I'm kind of wired to do that humble service thing. Then we, we haven't actually received grace. Grace has got a weight to it. God's grace that's free has the weight of his son's life and death. And when we receive that grace, there's a gravity to grace that just, it humbles us how we think about ourselves, how we see other people. And, and it moves us to humble service. Have we grasped the gravity of grace? Have we grasped the horror of the cross and Christ's great, God's great love for us? There's another thing about this whole thing of partnership. Do we, do, do we realize that our inability to read the word you, Y-O-U, correctly in the Bible, keeps forcing us, causing us, to misunderstand the church and miss out on all that God has for us through our relationship with the church. Let me give you an example. My life verse, Philippians 1.6. I love that verse. Paul says, I'm confident this very thing that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's my life verse because that's God's commitment to me. Mark my fear. I love that. He started it. I didn't deserve it. He's going to finish it. And that's my like, greatest goal in life. I want to finish and that's true theologically, but that's not the you of verse 6. So grammar, sorry, we're back in school. All right, grammar, second person. You can have you, singular, which means just you, just me, or you can have you, second person, plural, and it means all you guys. <laughs> right? 
And I guarantee you, just about every time you and I read the Bible and it says you, guess how we hear it? Me. Me. It's about me. Because where do we live? In America. And who are we? Rugged individualists. In Africa, they have a saying. This is a great saying. I am because we are. My identity is found in community. You know how it goes in America? I am, dude, because I am. <laughs> and I've worked hard to get here. And we do the little bootstrap thing, right? So the, 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 they don't have this problem in Africa. Oh, you guys, the way they live in community. When, when, did I ever tell you? I, I've had a busy weekend of speaking. Did I tell you about the pot of potatoes? Did I tell you about that this morning? Okay. So when, when I did that home visit in Kenya with Compassion, it was a 13-year-old boy who was in Pastor John's Academy who's boarding there, but he got to visit his family, and they're bringing gifts to the, to the child and to the, to the mother. Mother, six kids. And as we walked up the hill, grass hut, and we walked in kind of through this little corner quarter into this really dark room. The benches were like six inches off the ground. We're all in there, and it's smoky. There's fire going and uh, we found out her husband left her. She's got six kids. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have any land to farm. She doesn't have any animals, meaning she's got nothing. And so <coughs> we found out she was a believer. Pastor John knocked on her door. She's part of his church, but she still like had nothing. And, and, and we're going like, how does this work? So Pastor John said, well, her neighbors make sure she, she's got food for her kids. Well, then I noticed that the, at the back side of the fire that I was looking at, there was a pot. There was a pot full of water, and there was probably, I would guess, about four potatoes that were all chopped up. That was dinner from her neighbors. I thought, man, we, they get it in ways that we, you know, we're just going, well, the government does it. I mean, I, right? My taxes, right? So, so how we read the Bible we, we, we misunderstand how we're connected to each other when we keep thinking it's about us, ourselves, and not us together. We're, we're, we're losing that greater joy. We're losing that greater joy in our marriage because we still keep functioning like it's all about me. Here, here's what I know. Selfish ambition, we see it so easy. Let me tell you what. The more you see pride and vanity and conceit in somebody else, the more indicative it is that I got a problem in this area. That's why I see it so easily in everybody else. But the fact is we don't usually see it in ourselves. So I remember growing up with three sisters going, man, I am going to be God's gift to a woman because I've been living with all these women all my life. I am so tuned in to these women's needs. There's so much estrogen in this house. And you know what? I was as clueless as every other guy. I remember post-its on the mirror early in our marriage. Be sensitive, because I was just as much a jerk as you were, guys, so stop laughing at me. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, just, I think we underestimate how much of it is actually really going on, because we can dress it up and smooth out the edges. And the other thing we underestimate is how it is a deal breaker, how it's really destroying our marriages, how it's just keeping us from deeper places with our kids, with our spouse, with each other, with other Christians. So, I mean, we got into that room in the Pentecostal church with the 33 pastors now in Rwanda, and I was told, well, world relief, 
They're all about reaching the most vulnerable, and they want to equip churches to do that. And if you're a church and want to be part of their program, whatever your theological convictions are to start, that doesn't preclude you from being in it. They know what the gospel is. They're going to teach the gospel, but they're going to teach them a whole lot of other things. Like every church had a little community garden that showed them the best growing practices and farming practices. Every church had these life savings groups that were helping people get on with their life economically. They had these development programs for the little pro for the little kids. They had these volunteers that were going out to all the villages and all the people. It was awesome. But I go into the room at the Pentecostal church and they're singing, and you'd think they were all in the same denomination. Man, they're just loving Jesus. They're swinging. They're raising their hands, and it seems like they all know the song. And that was messing with my mind because there's a couple of there's like three Catholic priests right here there's a dude who was a leader from the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, there's Pentecostals there's Methodists, there's Assemblies of God there's Episcopalians, there's Anglicans there's Presbyterians there's Baptists and in my mind I'm going well that's a lot of differences theologically <laughs> so tuned into that, so tuned into that and I just think and not only do we focus too much on the differences, we underestimate just how much pride damages the work of God in our life and what he wants us to experience together and what he wants to be on with. And so, you know, the questions from the text are simple. Is my life grounded in grace? It's not if we haven't received Christ. And the text is telling us what, what he's offering you today is tenderness. That has a lot to do with your past and your regrets and your mistakes and your failures. And, and he, he's offering compassion today. That has a lot to do with the hard place that you're in right now. He, he's offering you his love that comforts a, a profound unity with the creator of the universe and intimacy with him, his spirit that gives you new life and new power and new desires to live in ways you've never imagined, that he's offering that to you. But if you haven't received Christ and acknowledged him as the Lord of the universe and now submit that he'd be the Lord of your life, then you're not grounded in grace and you're not gonna be positioned to share grace. You can try, but you don't have a source of it. Are we grounded in grace? Are we sharing that grace? Are we operating under the foot of the cross? Or is it all about me? And does humble service mark my life? There's no Christ-mindedness to our lives if it's not matched with humble service. God help us. So Lord, we just confess that when we think about it, that nagging problem with anger that resistance to forgiveness to someone who's wronged us. Lord, when we think about that just critical, sharp spirit that we have that's super judgmental, when we just think about those waves of jealousy and envy and covetousness, we, we know, Lord, <laughs> there's still so much that is centered around us, and we just confess it, and we thank you, Jesus, that you never acted in that and never were tempted to, and you died for all that mess. And so just, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Free us from that, that we might experience all that you have for us and that we might share that. Lord, grant faith today that someone would bow the knee of 
their life and confess you as their Lord and Savior and receive all that they need from you. And as a church, Lord, may we be a beautiful body that has your mind, that strives together with one mind and spirit and love to make a difference in this world and that we would understand that the greatest difference we can make together is as we lock arms and humbly serve. And so bless us as we do that, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.